Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, September 19th, 2021, is entitled Grieve. It's the second in a nine-part series, putting the gospel of Jesus Christ in conversation with the book See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love by Valerie Kaur. Today's sermon is a reflection on a reading from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. Friends, our scripture reading today comes from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 23 verses 37 through 39. Let's listen together, draw close to listen for a word from God for us in these words from Matthew 23. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, God is still speaking to the world and to us. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. So it's something of a truism that the shorter the scripture reading, the longer the context that is necessary to help us get into it and understand it. That certainly is true here today. We have three scant verses from the gospel according to Matthew. So it's important to look ahead and behind. In the verses from Matthew, just prior to our reading in chapter 23, Jesus, after spending most of his ministry outside of Jerusalem, has entered into the city at last, the capital city of the religious and secular powers of his day. And so he enters into the end game of his conflict with those same powers. And when he does Boy, the kid gloves come off. Jesus delivers a series of hard pronouncements, directly accusing the leaders of his own Jewish people of a poisonous hypocrisy, the very worst thing that Jesus accused anyone of. And he warns them of the dire consequences of their misdeeds, both for them and for those people they continue to exploit. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he intones again and again. Woe to you who tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but are yourselves unwilling to lift a finger to help carry them. 
Woe to you who love your privilege as leaders, your places of honor at banquets, being greeted with respect in the marketplace, who love all of this more than your responsibilities as leaders. Woe to you who ban others from enjoying God's love and life and yet never even experience it for yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' tone switches. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, how often I have desired to gather together you and your children as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings. Suddenly the woes are set aside and the image is soft and nurturing. Which may lead us to ask, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing? Because it doesn't take any special divine foreknowledge to understand where Jesus's story is going, where his actions and the reactions of the powers that be are leading. Those powers have made their opposition to his radical gospel of revolutionary love perfectly clear. They're clear that He is a threat not only to their authority, but to the degree that he and his followers disturb the peace imposed by their imperial Roman oppressors. He represents a threat to public safety as well. They believe he is a threat to the well-being of the very people that he has come to share so much love with. At this point, they have already begun making plans to silence him permanently. The shadow of the coming cross hangs over him at this point. And yet here in these verses, Jesus is tender with them. Jesus grieves for them. He grieves with them, with the leaders who will pull the strings and the crowds who will allow themselves to be manipulated, who will give in to their fears and anxieties. Grieves even with his own disciples who will all too soon desert, deny, and betray him. Jesus grieves, and so he mourns aloud. Mourns the death of the word of God, the word of life and love among these people that he cherishes. And the consequences of that loss for them, the desolation of their house the failing of their way of life. Consequences they already experience as a result of their being unable and unwilling to recognize the goodness of God at work and among them. In Jesus, yes, and all around them already. Remarkably, Jesus chooses to turn aside from his own journey and his own growing grief at his own coming loss in order to take time and make time to sit with them and weep with them in their woundedness and their loss. Jesus grieves with them because he loves them. 
As author activist Valerie Kaur writes in her book, See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, this book that we're spending time with this fall, grief is the inevitable price of love. Loving someone, she says, means that one day there will be grieving. They will leave you or you will leave them. The more you love, the more you grieve. These loving losses and the grief they cause us inwardly and our need to mourn them outwardly in community are an essential part of what make us human. In the months following the terrorist attacks of 9-11, Valerie and her brother Sonny crisscrossed the country in order to document the unreported and unlamented violence of those days. The subsequent wave of hate crimes against Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Arabs, and South Asian Americans, including the murder of a dear family friend, Balbir Singh Stodi and to bear witness to the grief of those families and those communities. Not just once or twice, but over and over again, literally from coast to coast. Because though the media covered these attacks only sporadically and shallowly, the FBI reported a 1,600% increase in attacks on Muslims and people mistaken for Muslims across the United States. Eventually, Valerie would turn these stories into her first documentary film called Divided We Fall, Americans in the Aftermath. To give their private grief the public recognition, the public mourning they needed, to let them know that someone heard them, that someone bothered to listen, to affirm their humanity and to recall the rest of us to ours. Because if grieving our own losses makes us human, grieving with others makes us more humane, more loving. We grieve not just because we love, but we love to the degree that we grieve with one another. Valerie puts it this way, loving someone means grieving with them. It means letting their pain and their loss bleed into your own heart. When you see that pain coming, you may want to throw up the guardrails, to sound the alarm, to raise the flag. I don't know if you have had that experience, but even as a pastor, I know I have. I have seen someone's pain and felt the barest tinge of it beginning to impinge on my own life. And I have wanted to turn aside to make things better, or at least to get away. I have rationalized it all kinds of ways, but it is true. Valerie encourages us, we must keep the borders of our heart porous in order to love well. It is an act of surrender. When we are brave enough to sit with our own pain, it deepens our ability to sit with the pain of others. It shows us how to love them. Jesus' willingness to grieve, 
even with the very people who would put him to death. Perhaps even more extraordinarily, even with those who couldn't care less whether he lived or died, is less a mark of his unfathomable, unobtainable divinity, his superhumanity as we often characterize him, even and perhaps especially in the church, and more a signpost on our journey into a deepening and expanding humanity as we follow in his footsteps. Jesus doesn't just grieve with them because he loves them. He grieves with them in order to love them, to show us how to love one another as well. How to gently come alongside those who are grieving and sit with them in that uncomfortable place, uncomfortable for them and uncomfortable for us, to sit with them, not in order to fix everything and make everything okay again. Oh, we love to jump to fixing things. When I was helping to teach an intro to pastoral care class at Yale Divinity School, where I was in charge of a small group where we did role plays, imagining ourselves in pastoral caregiving situations, my first and last word of advice to each and every one of my students and to myself was stop fixing. Fixing is about our discomfort and about our sense of control or the loss of control at least nine times out of 10. But Jesus is showing us how to come alongside, to listen and to bear witness and to love them. This is the radical message of revolutionary love that lies at the heart of our faith, that in Jesus, God shares our lives and our losses. Not simply to fix them and fix us, not simply in order to transform the world and accomplish our salvation, as if that were a task somehow separate from God's relationship with us, but rather because that is what love does. Love shares life and loss. And as a result, love changes the world. From her own perspective as a scholar and an activist and a person of faith, a practicing sick, Valerie Ricoeur reminds us that America's greatest social movements for civil rights, immigrants' rights, women's rights, union organizing, queer and trans rights, farm workers' rights, indigenous sovereignty, and black lives, all were rooted in the solidarity that came from shared grieving. Not just a shared sense of our highest-minded purposes, but from shared grieving. First, she says, people grieve together. Then they organized together. When people who have no obvious reason to love each other come together to grieve, she says, they can give birth to new relationships, even revolutions. Jesus grieves with the scribes and the Pharisees, with the people of Jerusalem, 
with friends and enemies and strangers. He grieves with us. And that act of quiet, intentional solidarity breaks down the dividing wall between us, between us and God, between us and our neighbors, even between us and the we we might become in God's good time and with God's grace. Jesus grieves and draws us together into a larger circle, no longer us and them, but a larger us within the embrace of the love that longs to embrace us like a mother hen, like God in this tender and homely image. One of the strangest and most moving parts of my job as a pastor is to grieve people and with people I do not know. I have done this more times than I can count over more than 20 years in ministry. It is one thing and truly a hard and holy blessing to grieve the passing of longtime parishioners that I have come to know and love and to help our beloved community grieve those losses together. But friends, there is something powerful and humbling in being asked to walk with strangers through their own intimate losses. Sure, I bring a particular set of skills to the shaping of a memorial service. And so, of course, for me, the temptation to fix is stronger than perhaps for many. But really, the most important gift I have to give is my attention. That when they pick up the phone, these strangers I do not know, when they reach out to me through the funeral home, I will go. And I will sit and I will spend the time. To say, I did not know your mother, father, aunt, uncle, colleague, friend. But as a human being, I share your loss. For all that may divide us, this is, the, this is one of those few experiences that utterly unites us. Not just us with one another here today, but with every human being who has ever come before us and all who will follow after. That sounds, again, high-minded and abstract, but it is the stone-cold reality. Each of us will mourn and each of us will be mourned. All of us will grieve. But my message in that moment is simply this, you are not alone. We are not alone. We are no longer strangers. We are simply family that we have not yet come to know. Friends, there are so many folks out there in the world today who are grieving. Individuals and whole communities. I myself have led two memorial services simply in the last month. 
one of them delayed for more than a year because of our COVID pandemic situation. There are folks who have not had that chance, who are grieving inside and who have not yet had an opportunity to mourn in community. And there are so many communities mourning as well. The entire Black Lives Matter movement is founded out of grief at the death of black and brown folks at the hands of police violence across the country. Again, not just once or twice, but over and over again. Asian communities across our country are seeing the same sort of increase in violence against them as those who were perceived as Muslim did in the wake of 9-11. Communities around the world and even in our own United States, in the American West, in the South, and in other places, are grieving the losses that climate change is already beginning to work among us. The fires and the floods, the storms and the starvation. Urban communities and rural communities continue to grieve and to pass the trauma of unresolved grief down from generation to generation in their experience of anything but benign neglect. Even just our ordinary neighbors. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that we should be kind with one another. We should be tender with one another because we do not know what griefs we are carrying. Who knows what griefs? go on in the lives around us, folks who are afraid to let it show, who've been told that it is too uncomfortable for others. But they need us. Not to swoop in and fix things, as I've said. But first and foremost, to bear witness to their loss, to their pain, to let them know that someone hears them, that someone is willing to turn aside and take time and make time to be with them in a season of grief. To show them by our acts of love that if we don't understand now, we are willing to learn We are willing to risk suffering with them and risk being changed by that experience, by our relationship with them. That is the beginning and end of compassion, to be willing to suffer with those around us. Friends, this is the tool that we can take with us from this place as we endeavor to learn better how to love God as we love our neighbor, as we love ourselves. Grief is the price of love. Grief is how we learn to love. Grief is love in practice.